Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled, strategized, and learned their way into achieving great things. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit. And in today's episode, I'm excited to chat with a mentor and advisor of mine and a uh, straight living legend, Dick Costolo. Dick is an entrepreneur, an investor, advisor to governors, presidents, CEOs, and an HBO show or two. He's the former CEO of Twitter and currently invests out of his fund, Zero One Advisors. Welcome to The Art of the Hustle, Dick. Thanks for being on the show. Happy to be on the show. So, uh... We were just talking briefly before we pressed record, and uh, you were telling me that you guys had a full vegetable garden. Um, where are you in the world right now? We're in we're in Napa. We have a little tiny uh, property in the middle of all the vines. We don't have we don't have any grapevines, but we just have a place in the valley in Napa. So it's kind of you know, it's just farmers out here now. There's nobody up here because the wineries are all closed. So it's it's just farmers who are dealing with their grapevines. And then uh, we have a big vegetable garden, so that's coming and really coming in handy. Yeah, uh, it is the the real luxuries in life are emerging. You know, I think that uh, we were taking a lot of these things for granted because of like the unbelievable amount of options we have for all of like you know life's the exotic things that become the day to day necessities. Yeah, no, we've got a ton of you know we've got a ton of like kale and collard greens and artichokes and. I mean, you usually think like, oh, we've got way too much kale or way too many artichokes. And, you know, you give a bunch of them away. Now it's great. Um, you can just go out to the garden and get it. Uh, it's really awesome to have something like that. It's, a, it's really a luxury. This thing that goes from, like you just said, this thing that goes from, oh, it's cute to, oh, it's a total luxury to be able to have that right now. It's awesome. It's such a stereotype of like Silicon Valley swashbuckling CEO goes to, you know, garden kale or chop wood or bake bread, but it's real. What do you think that, why why do you think that that's a common practice where you'll see a lot of the thought leaders in your space that have this total like left brain, right brain switch um, into, you know, remote Vipassana style hangs? (laughs) <laughs> I'm not doing any silent meditation retreats or sweat lodges. Okay. Um, I don't know. I've just always like, I can't, I have to be busy. You know, I just have always been that way. I had a, I had a, when I was in sixth grade, I got my first job, you know, since I was in sixth grade, one of the only things I could do was uh, go be a golf caddy at a country club. Cause you know, couldn't get a 11 years old, 12 years old, can't get a regular job. And uh, you know, I was up at like, 5am on Saturday and Sunday morning. So I could get there early so I could get out twice and make more money. I just, so you were 11 years old. This is Royal Oak, Michigan. 
That's correct. Amazing. Uh, and I know you went to University of Michigan and you've been, you know, in the game in terms of technology and Silicon Valley and, you know, a lot of these generational uh, companies, Google and Twitter, et cetera, for uh, a long, long time. But it sounds like, you know, at 11, you already had the hustle. You already were, you know, motivated, self-motivated. But why Why did you want to run two routes uh, in that fashion? What did you want the money for? What was the What was the motivator? I don't even remember. I just was like, I got to get there before anyone else gets there so I can get two rounds in so I can make, you know, you know, 40 bucks instead of just making 20 bucks. Because if I only get out once, I'll make 20 bucks. And if I make, get out twice, I'll make 40 bucks. Um, and I just saved it all. You know, I didn't spend it on stuff. I just saved it all for college, you know, and was able, <laughs> even though I did that for like three years, I think it paid for like, you know, a semester or something at University of Michigan. Um, so the hustle to return back in those days for uh, even back then for higher education in state higher education at a public school, no less, uh, still wasn't uh, still wasn't too terrific. But I just like had this like, um, you know, I just always wanted to be moving, you know, um, just from way back in the day. And then my dad got me one of the very first personal computers, this Radio Shack TRS Model 80. And I just started learning to program on that. So even when I went to school to even when I went to Michigan, I already knew I wanted to study computer science. I kind of knew what I was going to do. And was it already? I know I know. today it's a pretty legendary engineering computer science school. Was it then in the 80s? Um, so the funny thing was in the 80s, the computer science department was in the humanities school. The literature science, there it's called LSNA, Literature Science and the Arts, uh, Liberal Arts School. It wasn't, it wasn't in, um, in the engineering school the way it is today. So the crazy thing that happened was because I was in the literature liberal arts school, I had to have a certain number of humanities credits when I graduated. And, uh, and that meant senior year, I took a bunch of like theater classes because I was like, oh, I need some stupid arts credits to graduate. And, uh, and I got the bug from doing that. And so when I graduated, it's sort of a bunch told this story a few times, but when I graduated, I turned down all my like programming jobs at companies like, you know, I don't know, Burroughs and Honeywell and those kinds of places um, and, and went to Second City in Chicago to try to um, just become an improviser and get on Saturday Night Live. So ditched everything and went to Chicago and uh, did improv comedy for years. And, uh, and you told, you know, we were hanging up a few months ago and it was the first time I had heard this, but Steve Carell was in your Second City class, correct? He and I showed up almost the exact same time there and we're in one of the first, they launched this thing when we'd gotten there called the Second City Training Center. It was basically like, hey, if you want to, you know, perform at Second City like everybody else who comes to Chicago and, uh, you know, then you got to go through this program first. And he and I were in the second group, I think, in the program. And we sort of showed up there the same day um, with a bunch of other, you know, a bunch of other people were all there at the same time, um, you know, over the years. Uh, Tina Fay, of course, Adam McKay, um, Horatio Sands, um, gosh, uh, Rachel Dratch and, you know, uh, Matt Walsh, all the UCB people were there at the same time. So it was a really cool, fun time to be there. And do you see, like, what are the overlaps? I'm sure you've thought about this, but in terms of like leadership skills and improv comedy and how do these things in your mind connect? Oh, man, like tons. Um, first of all, in improv comedy, I mean, first, the, the very first thing you know, sort of you figure out if you, if you, and if you don't, you don't last very long is listening is the most important thing to be doing on stage because there's not, there are no objects on stage. You're just making it all up as you go along and, and watching what the other people are doing and listening to what they're saying as they make it up. And if you don't listen, uh, you know, the scene doesn't really go anywhere. So it's kind of beat into you early on listening, listening, listening is the most important thing you can do to help propel a scene forward. And that's the, you know, I used to tell my managers at Twitter, listening is like 70% of what managers should be doing. You know, your job isn't to make all the decisions or be omniscient. Your job is to gather feedback and get the best information and make sure the best decisions are being made, not to be omniscient and make all the decisions and tell people what to do. So, I mean, there were tons of overlap there. And then, and then secondly, I mean, even even sort of created this sort of, um, we, you know, I just 
one of the beautiful things in improvisation is this notion of yes and, where everything that someone initiates, you just accept it as fact and accept it as the truth whenever they initiate something on stage. And the idea of yes and was, I accept that. I, that's now the truth of what's happening in the scene. And, and on top of that, here's something I'm going to add to that. And it's instead of saying, you know, no, that's not true, which stops a scene or asking a question which doesn't propel a scene forward or saying yes, but, which directs the scene in another direction. The idea of yes and was, I'm just going to accept what you said is the truth and, and we're going to go forward. And so we sort of got to this point at Twitter where I realized people were not taking risks or not taking chances because they were, um, you know, they don't want to get in trouble uh, or they're afraid of breaking something. So they'll Instead of initiating something, they'll go ask for permission. This happens in all, by the way, not just Twitter. As an organization grows and gets over some, you know, some some number over the Dunbar number of number of people you can know in a company, um, folks will start to go around and ask for permission to be able to do things. And people won't say no. They'll generally say, "You should go ask these four people." And you know, pretty soon it's three weeks later, and nothing's been done because the person's checking off, you know, everybody on the checklist of permission they have to get. So. At Twitter, just instituted this bias to yes, and bias to yes was assume the answer is yes. You're not allowed to. You're not allowed to tell people they have to go ask other people for permission. You know, if if um, if someone you're directly reporting to uh, doesn't tell you you're not allowed to do something, you know, no one else is no one else is allowed to tell you you've got to go ask people for permission. Assume the answer is yes. Communicate what you're going to do and do it. Um, and that is that sort of stuff was all based on improvisation and was enormously helpful. And you've told me, uh, you've shared some advice with me in the past that you've told me is also pretty widely applicable that you had mentioned in, uh, in that, which was, you know, that a lot of, you know, talented people, um, that run organizations do get stuck in this self limiting, you know, I'm doing everything or involved in every decision or directing, you know, vision on all these different departments, whether you are like the idea of stopping making all the decisions, how common is this? How often when you're, you know, working with your portfolio companies where you, are you, are you sharing this advice and help, help us understand a little bit better? Always. I mean, I, t I tell people like, don't, you know, first of all, when leaders tell people what to do, you know, it removes all the ownership from the person's sense of, you know, let's say you tell your, you know, I don't know, you're so your your manager and you and you tell someone what to do instead of letting them find the solution or helping them find the solution that that they've come up with. They don't feel accountability to it. They don't feel ownership of it because you, you know, if it doesn't work, they're like, well, you know, Dick's crazy and he had this stupid idea. I guess I'll go see what he wants to do next. Instead of if it's their idea and they come up with it and they feel real ownership of the solution and it doesn't work, they're going to figure it out. You know, I got to figure out how, what to do about this because this was my idea. So trying to hold people accountable for something when you're the one telling them what to do is just creates misery. Um, and it's not particularly a high leverage use of, of, you know, anybody's time. I remember Bill Campbell, you know, the famous sort of executive coach um, who, who was uh, – on the Apple board and was famously Larry and Sergey and Eric's coach. Um, you know, when I was, when I was first CEO at Twitter, he sat in the back of the room in a management team meeting. And I thought it was a particularly good meeting because it made all these decisions. And uh, we left the room and I thought he was, I was like, you know, what do you think? You know, I'm pretty psyched about myself. He was like, that was a D. You know, what are you talking about? He's like, he said, let me tell you something. When I took over as CEO of Claris, they spun out Claris software out of Apple. It's like making all these decisions because now I'm the CEO and I should make all these decisions. And this woman who was one of my senior vice presidents who had come from Apple with me named Donna Dubinsky came up to me after the second week and said, hey, Bill, if you're going to make all the decisions, I'm just going to go back to Apple and you can pay someone a lot less money to do this job. And sort of like hit him on the head that, you know, you've got all these smart people in the company, let them own their solutions. And, and you know, the CEO should really only be making the decisions that only the CEO can make. Um, and I, my think that's true. And I tell people that all the time. Like, why have you got all these really smart people around the table if you're making all the decisions? Man, it's such a, I think when you're a young entrepreneur, you want to like hit the game winner, you know, you want to like be the player, get the celebration, retire the Jersey. And then as you get older, you're like, man, what a limiting factor. If like, I have to be the one. And then you, you know, I, I remember 
you know, and I'm not, you know, particularly great manager or business builder. I think, um, you know, I'm very much empowered by a community of people around me. Like I have a very flat, wide, you know, incredibly talented team that helps us have such like, you know, sort of a wide breadth at Summit. Um, but when, when I, you know, I, I recall sucking at work for frankly, like six, eight months. I, it was around the time of having my first kid. I was like, man, I just have to change the way I do things. Like if I just hustle or am I working harder or more involved in all these things, like it's not going to, you know, it's just only going to forever incrementally change the outcome. Um, so I just remember having to actually stop and pause and, and, you know, work differently. Um, and I've asked, you know, other people on the podcast about that. They're like, yeah, dude, that's just called getting older and getting smarter. I, I wonder how you think about that transition. Yeah, I think, well, so first of all, you know, the, there's a reason that younger entrepreneurs do that. It's because when they started the company and there were eight people around, you know, and, and now there's 500 people because they've been successful and they scaled, the, the action was reinforced. Hey, uh, two years ago, when I dive bombed that product meeting and, and said, no, 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 that's stupid. Let's do it this way and wrote the new thing on the whiteboard. Look, it worked. So, <laughs> you know, the reason they got to a successful company that's now growing is because when there were 10 of them, they did this a lot and, you know, it worked. So I should keep doing it. You know, you just have to learn as you migrate from building a product to building a company, building and scaling a company um, to let people feel real ownership over decisions. And ownership is accountability with authority. Like I have the, uh, the authority to figure out what I want the solution to be. And, and then I'll, I'll feel a lot more accountable to it. If you tell me what to do and then get mad at me because it didn't work, I'm not going to feel very bad about it. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not probably, you know, probably going to sit there and, well, let's just wait to see what Dick tells me to do next. It's not a very, it's not a very scalable or high leverage solution. Um, so I always looked for, I always try to help CEOs with, you know, just always be thinking about operating leverage and operating efficiency. And how can you get more, what's the highest leverage thing you can be doing right now? And what's a higher leverage rate way to run that meeting? Those kinds of things. Will you expound upon that? The highest leverage way to run a meeting? Yeah. Like, so for example, sit in, one of the things I'll do is, you know, when I'm just getting involved in a company and I'll just ask to like, let me just sit in the back of the room in a management team meeting and take notes, you know? And again, these are companies that are Remember, they were like all businesses. They are small. They sit around a table. They try to figure out what to do. They check in with each other. It grows and grows and grows. And, um, you know, there's now there's 150 people and, you know, get to sit in the management team Monday. And uh, I mean, I'll give you a, uh, an example from a couple of years ago. Sitting in the back of the room, there's nine people in the meeting. No one's taking notes. It's an hour and a half, two hour meeting. We're going around the room. People are doing status updates. And I'm already writing down my notes like, there's 400 people in this company now. Like, why are we spending the most expense, one of the most expensive meetings in the company with the entire leadership team just doing status updates? We could have done this in a Sunday night email. Um, we should be talking about, you know, contentious decisions that we need to make where everyone's not on the same page yet or the strategic landscape or the competitive landscape or a deal we lost. Anyway, uh, we leave the meeting and, you know, much like me and much like me walking off with Bill Campbell after several years ago, I walk up to the CEO and the CEO is like, what do you think? Pretty good, huh? And I said, how many action items came out of that meeting? And the CEO says something like, ah, uh, five, you know, uh, that guy took that one, um, VP marketing, she took that one and I took two. I was like, and so I said, well, fortunately I took notes. No one else took notes, but I took notes. There were nine action items that came out of the meeting. We already know that you forgot what five of them are. So next Monday's meeting is going to be, you know, and just, um, you know, it creates misery for people, right? Like next, I said, next Monday and next Monday's meeting, you're going to have a conversation, something along the lines of, hey, where's that metrics dashboard we talked about last week? And someone will say, weren't you going to get me the requirements for it first? No, you were going to mock something up and then show it to me. And the reason we're going to have that discussion is because nobody's taking notes. So nobody knows exactly what the action items are. You made most of the decisions. You already forgot what five of the follow-ups were that you that you took out of the meeting so next monday you're going to say oh yeah yeah sorry i forgot about that i'll get back to you and you got nine people in the room like let let the team you know your job as a ceo is to help the team work as a team and get the team working together as a team not to like sit there and you know be the quarterback and say you go run deep you go run that way you go run that way 
you're not going to get anything done and you're going to, the company's never going to move faster. You're the coaching staff, yeah. not the quarterback. Yeah. There, there's just dozens of these things that are low leverage use of time, not getting the team working together as a team. Everything's now blockade. CEO took seven of the nine action items. We're now going to wait for the CEO to make these decisions. He already forgot what a bunch of them were. So nothing's going to get done till next Monday. Couldn't be a lower leverage meeting. Um, so there's just lots of stuff that it's not rocket science. It's, Lots of stuff that you learn over time to, you know, distribute the load. And CEO should probably be taking almost no decisions out of a management team meeting like that. Let the team work together as a team, you know. And then the one of the I'll say one more thing and then shut up. Um, one of the things you'll hear is as a as a comeback to that is well, you know, um, my vice president of engineering and my general counsel disagreed. So you know, I we had I, we had to make a decision, and so I made it. I made the decision. You know, and I'll, I'll always tell the CEOs, look, you're the CEO. You can always you can always override everyone on the team if you want to and say, you all think we should do that, do X, but we're going to do Y. And here's here's why I think that. That's fine. You're the CEO. By the way, only do that a couple times a year or, you know, you'll lose the team. But you can do that. That's your prerogative. But most of the time, if you've got a, you know, couple, few people that disagree about a decision on your team, you know, have the... VP of engineering and general counsel, like, okay, you two go away and come back by end of day Wednesday and propose a solution to the team. And by the way, don't propose, I think we should do this and she thinks we should do that. You know, come back with one proposal. Now you've got your team working together as a team and you're not, you know, breaking all the ties and, and you know, you're not, the, you're not their psychiatrist and you're not, you know, solving the world's problems. It's going to be a much more high functioning team over time as they learn how to work together. We'll be back with more Art of the Hustle after the break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind-the-scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. 
not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's take it to a more macro, more market-based place. You know, here we are. Um, at a generation-defining moment, you know, with coronavirus, you know, at least for me, I know you've been through many boom and bust cycles. I imagine not to this degree, but perhaps you see that differently. I'm curious, like how how are you framing this moment that we're in? Yeah, so as in sort of in the middle of it, uh, yeah, I have I've been through a, a, a couple of these, I guess, um, especially in business, in 9/11, of course, and then in in the 2008-2009 recession. I think that, um, I I guess my experience would tell me a couple things. One, it's usually the case that when you're um, in the middle of it, which we certainly are now, it seems like it's going to all be a lot worse for a lot longer um, than is usually the case. Um, The Society turns out to usually be pretty resilient about um, socioeconomically um, coming back from these things as horrible as they are. Um, So my guess is that something like that will probably happen here, um, even as bad as it looks from the inside. And, And I think these things, I guess a general way of saying that is these things tend to get a lot worse a lot more quickly than you think they will but then also tend to get um, better, um, you know, in the macro sense, more quickly than, than you think they will. Um, I think that something like that will hopefully be the case here as well. And then I'd say the other thing is when you're in these things, you have a sense that things will, you know, and you see certainly see this a lot now, things will never be the same. You know, we'll never think about X the same way again. And it's generally the case that Lots of things go back to exactly where the way they were, which you wouldn't have thought would happen. And then some things are very, very different. I mean, obviously coming out of 9-11, um, going through airport security has never been the same and never will be the same. But uh, coming out of the 2008-2009 recession, boy, you wouldn't have thought if in 2009, if you told people, you know, people are going to be flipping houses again in, in three years, they'd look at you like they would have looked at you like you were crazy. You know, no, mortgages are going to be cheap again and people are going to be buying and selling houses. And, you know, uh, that's what happened. I think Sequoia's RIP Good Times deck on investing in that recession, you know, within a within a few months, um, some of the best companies ever, you know, have been built in, in, in the space in the last couple of decades were, were funded. Airbnb and, and, and Uber and earlier rounds of, you know, the B round, C rounds of, of Twitter and Facebook and Dropbox and on and on and on. And do you think that this is going to change the type of companies that people are investing in. I know you have zero to one, your fund, um, you know, and, and we, we know different models of companies, some that are geared towards, you know, producing as you know, high of an EBITDA profit as possible. Others that are spending hundreds of millions, if not billions to acquire markets. Do you, do you see a major shift occurring? Like what are you personally, you know, prioritizing? Well, for sure the growth companies now that burn lots of money to, that need to spend lots and lots of money to grow are in, in just, those are, they're in, you know, they're in dire straits. Um, so the short answer to your first question is yes. I think the kinds of companies that people will look to invest in will change in, in the sense that um, lots of the um, remote, you know, remote workforce kinds of software will, will see increased demand. Certainly the um, companies like OutSchool and, you know, those homeschooling technical solutions to, Education um, and home education seem like they'll grow significantly. Subscription services that people are starting to rely on instead of going to the market. Probably a lot of people will, some people will churn out of those. Lots of people will just keep them because they find it like, oh, this is actually a much more convenient way of getting things. So I think, I do think people will change the kinds of businesses they invest in. And I think the kinds of the businesses that are successful coming out of this will be a little bit different in, in those kinds of ways. Fascinating. And I know you've also been involved, um, you know, as a civic servant, you know, you, you've been involved in the state and in the country's politics and, and, and more, more from a business perspective. Are you still active right now in this moment? Yeah, I'm just trying to spend most of my time there. But, you know, one of the great thing that's great things that's happening in technology right now, you know, the country likes to, for whatever reason, the country now likes to beat up on the 
on the technology class and technology companies. Well, not for whatever reason. There are lots of perfectly valid reasons. Seemingly, these companies seemingly um, steamrolling people. So, so I get the concern about these these big tech companies. But behind the scenes, lots of these tech leaders now are really, really rolling up their sleeves and 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 doing what you would have hoped to have seen from the federal government, like acquiring masks and and protective gear. Um, gowns, et cetera, from, from all sorts of places overseas, manufacturing them. Um, you know, you've been involved in this personally and, uh, and getting those to hospitals and healthcare workers in, in states like Florida and, and, and Louisiana and New York and, and California and else in Michigan and Illinois that really need them right now. That's just been uh, great to see. And, and lots of that's happening behind the scenes is not, you know, they're not out there on the front uh, waving their arms around saying, look what I'm doing. Um, I just think that's great. And, you know, it's another, it's, it's good to see people, you, you really do see in these times of crisis, people really reveal themselves to be, you know, you see people for their true selves. And it's, it's cool to see so many people uh, stepping up and doing that. Um, I'm spending a bunch of my own time just on uh, trying to help out um, some local restaurants, some uh, couple in San Francisco, uh, uh, a couple in New York, you know, that the, the entire uh, teams and staffs at these places have been mostly furloughed or laid off. Um, those people don't have other sources of income at all. And so just been trying to spend spend my own time and attention there. Totally. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, and I, I've been reading about both the, that the restaurant component specifically, David Chang had that great article in the New York Times just about how most of your yep. favorite restaurants are not going to be around essentially just because of the way that they're structured. And, yep. you know, I have also been told that, you know, in class A markets, say like, you know, the major cities, um, the major real estate projects, for the most part, hospitality or, or these heavily capitalized projects, you're not going to see this like huge wave of bankruptcy because the banks don't want to own a thousand hotels. You're going to have like the, the more corporate sized organizations be able to restructure, whereas it is more more the individually owned startup mom and pop that's going to really take. Is this is this the right interpretation? Do you do you see things this way? Yeah, I mean, the hospitality industry is just in dire, dire straits, you know, you never model occupancy rates of sub 10%. I mean, I'm, I'm not, it's just like you wouldn't, you would never, what would cause you to model occupancy rates of sub 10%. So even in your like um, recession planning, you might think, well, we're going to go from 70 to 90% occupancy to, you know, 65 and or 60. So we should really prepare for that rainy, rainy day. Well, they're sub 10%. I mean, the entire Las Vegas strip is shut down. It's crazy. So I just don't know how many of those companies are going to be able to, how, how, I just don't know how these things are, are going to survive or what form they're going to take um, coming out of this and how many of them will go away. Um, it'll surely be the case for the reasons you describe it. The, the banks don't want to own all these things. So they'll provide restructuring capabilities, but it's going to require it's it's just the entire landscape of the hospitality space is going to change and it makes me think just about like you know the, the the it's 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 really fascinating right now because like you know the we've been on a course now since say you know 2011 2012 to your point you know after the uh the uh global economic crisis um and and you know things seem to be pretty set we certainly were entering like a hockey stick of the curve in terms of like company valuations in terms of, you know, the stock market, it was pretty exponential, just like the value and return profile, like the end of a cycle anyway. Um, and I, I don't know, it's just fascinating to me because like, you know, now it seems that all bets are off, like all, you know, outcomes that seem to be already foretold in terms of who would succeed or fail and how to measure those things. Are, are, are seemingly out the window. How, how are you like when you're thinking about, again, I want to, I sort of asked the question, but I'd love for you to be a little bit more granular. Uh, you know, like when you're thinking about what you're allocating your time and your capital into, you guys are making typically, you know, significant eight figure, nine figure investments. Like when, you know, tomorrow, Monday arrives, like, what are you going to be spending your time on? Who are you going to be spending your time with? I mean, I think the if I had to generalize it while while being specific about answering your question, I think a lesson learned for me is is a focus on software. Like there are lots of and and over the last decade, there have been a lot of 
you could call them tech companies where the unit economics weren't really based on software. Uber, Uber, Airbnb, you know, you, you pick. It's the, they're, they're technology companies, but the unit economics are based on uh, rides. But I understand their software, they're, they're, the, the enabling technology is the software. Yeah, but they're not software companies per se, right? A software company is I write this code once and it is used by N, you know, people and the N plus one user doesn't cost me anymore because I already have the code written. You, you, you know, software companies, um, whether they're cloud-based or consumer-based or, 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 or what. Um, and I think um, a big, a big, just a big takeaway f- from me is a reminder to stay focused and stay in the stay in the stay in the lane of of software unit economics that um, are resilient, um, uh, or at least can be resilient uh, if the right leadership and right execution is in place um, to exogenous forces uh, that inevitably happen like this, whatever they may be. And those are unit economics, I understand. And um, that's been probably the number one takeaway for me, even though lots of the really, really big companies of the last decade have, have not necessarily been those, as we just discussed. Sure. I find it all really informative and appreciate you, you know, breaking it down. Um, and I mean, it seems, though, you know, there's, there's going to be an acceleration in the human cost to, you know, this, this new era of uh, software and AI and robotics and automation. And, you know, again, we were already hitting a curve where, like you said, all these things are more at risk. Now we're going to perhaps, you know, order these things from home or, you know, do our workouts on, on zoom versus at the gym. Um, you know what I mean? Like there's all, there's all these implications that happen after. And often the things that you're talking about empowering, um, you know, do have a human cost. Now in history, there's always been, you know, the, this sort of cognitive enabling, you know, power of technology where there were all the new jobs that would come out of these things that were being created. I'm just curious how you think about that, because I know you, you know, you're a very for purpose guy. You have a huge heart. Um, you, you care a lot about, you know, the, the, the motivator for you is that, you know, these things, it's not, you know, that software builds businesses that creates more exits. So it's like, yours you know, a couple of zeros in a bank account, like that's not the motivator yeah. for you. So I'm curious, yeah. like, you know, when you think about this and the implications, where, where does your head go? I'm not a believer in the, as, 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 as I mentioned a little bit earlier or alluded to, at least I'm not a big believer in everything is changed forever just because the hi- history of these History of, of, you know, black swan events, whatever you want to call them, um, this could never happen and then it happens, um, is that a lot of things do go back to uh, the way they were because society is resilient. So, you know, for example, I'm sure Coachella 2021 will be packed. I just, sure. I just think it will be. Um, and the notion that, well, no one's going to go to, you know, people are going to think twice before they go to, you know, uh, uh uh Los Angeles Lakers game again like no they won't i mean not 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 a year from now they'll t- totally going to go to a Lakers game You're again right. and you know and yeah are people going to be more careful about that coming immediately out of this and and going back to work and making sure they're um uh, going back to work in a safe way and in, in you know in 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 September or or whatever month it is um this year of course but but by this time next year, people will be going to sporting events again and, 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 you know, and playing flag football on the field and the, and the, and, and going to concerts. Um, I just, I just think that's the case. I do, I do think that, that the, um, historic belief that, you know, um, there's kind of been this, um, I don't know, dogma maybe that, well, um, you know, you can't really work from home from, for too long, or you can't really build a remote workforce because it doesn't really work. Everyone's got to be in the office and on the same page and, and in the same physical location. A lot of that, I think, has, has been sort of, you know, we've now run the experiment and are seeing, actually, you can do a pretty good job uh, with a bunch of your people, um, you know, remote. Um, there are some business that are, businesses that are growing like a weed uh, during this time, and, and, and that's with all remote employees. Um, so it's certainly the case that, some of the employee base can be remote and we can be just as, just as effective going forward. Um, and then I think uh, another set of institutions that will probably be disrupted and hopefully create even more jobs are, um, 
you know, uh, uh, schools and universities. There are, you know, a lot of parents right now going, wait a minute, I was paying, you know, extraordinary amount of money and having to borrow money to, to, to pay tuition. And my son or daughter is uh, doing, you know, two or three hours a day remotely on Zoom right now. They could go do that with, a, you know, one of these online universities um, for one twentieth the price. So I think, I think, I think there will be some dramatic changes just based on we've now run the experiment of could you do a bunch of this stuff remotely and are seeing that it is possible. You know, I'm sure there are some CFOs out there that are going, wait a minute, we were spending 250000 a month on travel and entertainment. And, you know, we've seen some impact to the next quarter, but not, you know, 100% impact to the next quarter. And now we're not spending any money on travel and entertainment. Is all that travel and entertainment, you know, has that all been really worth it? We now get to find out. Um, and I think some of that will change. Interesting. Yeah, I think you're right on the on the human component too, the Coachellas or the Lakers games. In fact, we might need it more. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that's that's right. Um, I'm a much bigger believer in there will be more desire for a connection and the realization that wow, what have I been doing? Not you know going out and seeing my friends for dinner on Tuesday night when I could have been doing that and um, and travel and seeing seeing people in places you. Don't think about going to see that you'd like to see. I, I think there will be, you know, again, once it's safe, there will be even more of that than there was previously. Art of the Hustle will be right back after this short break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of MoviePhone. The studios didn't really control the theaters, the theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. 
I want to ask you, you know, just as we're sitting here and talking and I'm thinking about, man, like how lucky am I that I just get to pepper you with questions now that we've created this format. But, uh, you know, I, I want to talk to you about Twitter. Um, you know, it's something that you uniquely have gotten to think about more than just about anyone else on the planet. And I, you know, I frankly still, it's, it's still such an enigma to me. It's so big. It's so impactful. What, what, and it's still, and it's still ever evolving and changing. It's, I think a misunderstood you know, a uh, platform, what did it do for us? How did Twitter change the world? Well, it did several things. It enabled the world to see exactly what was happening in some location from the inside out immediately. What do I mean by that? In, in, by inside out, I mean, you get to see through Twitter what's happening in the world from the people that are in it not from outside observers of it, like a reporter or a, you know, or, or a, here's a video camera of what's happening inside the stadium. You're getting to hear from the players in the stadium. You're getting to hear from the people participating in the event, whatever the event is. You're from the, you know, from the people on the plane that crashed at, you know, at, at, at SFO uh, on the flight back from, from Seoul, you know, who are tweeting just crash landed at SFO. Um, that inside out view of what's happening from the participants in an unfiltered way, instead of filtered through some third party commenting on it has been, I think overall awesome. It comes along with lots of, you know, um, challenges like people's using it, people and state actors. Um, and that is just in case for anyone out there who still doesn't believe that for whatever reason, it has 100% been the case in the past that state actors and currently use these platforms to try to spread misinformation um, and, and discord. Um, but I think overall, it's been great. You know, you get to see the 360 degree view of a person instead of just the reporting of, of narrative of, 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 of a person or an event or a, or a, a group. That's a great perspective on it. And, and, uh, you know, Jack's particularly amazes me, you know, uh, I, I see him as like a once in a generation entrepreneur, um, you know, the, the, at the top of the, the interview I alluded to, you know, uh, baking bread and Vipassana, which is, you know, his real life. Um, and you know, the guy is running both square and Twitter. I'm going to interrupt you to tell you something about Jack that people don't realize. Please. Just because look, I, I'm not speaking out of school. Jack would tell you he's an introvert by nature. You know, he, he is not, um, he's sort of like, if, you know, if you told me like, Hey, I want you to get up on stage and, you know, um, improvise with this group of people, I'd do it. And if you told that to Jack, you know, he'd, he'd probably have a heart attack. I mean, he's just an introvert by nature, but he's like in, he's really, really funny. So he's got this great sense of humor. So, you know, when I was, running Twitter, um, uh, when I was CEO of Twitter and he was chairman of the board, we would have dinner every Tuesday night, um, uh, every week, uh, and talk about the company and, and just what was going on in our lives. And he's, he's extraordinarily funny. So, um, so hopefully as, you know, hopefully as he gets more comfortable speaking, speaking in, in front of large crowds, uh, people will get to see more and more and more of that. When I imagine there's only so much you can say in the present moment as a CEO of a publicly traded organization, and for you, like, I mean, is that, is that, I guess I'm just trying to, you know, if I can pull out from your perspective, what makes exceptional leadership, what builds exceptional companies, what is like the zero to one for us all out here that are like, you know, on the path? Um, because you, you just, you've lived it, you've studied it, you've invested in every phase of businesses you've built, you know, g different generations of technology you've worked with, you know, the best of my generation, um, you know, like help, help us arrive at some of the patterns that you've recognized. Great leaders eat last, you know, they, they make sure the team is taken care of first. They're high empathy. They're able to look at things through other people's point of view and they listen. And they know that their job isn't to prevent mistakes from happening. Their job is to correct mistakes quickly when they happen. They admit their mistakes and they make it easy for people to tell them the truth. The faster you know the truth, the sooner you can correct mistakes that have been happened. How do you wrap that all into a, a bundle? They're, they're high empathy people. They're people who are able to realize 
that everyone else in the world is a me as well. Um, and that's what makes a great leader. Now, are there exceptions to that? Of course. There are some people that are once in a millennium geniuses that are able to do things differently. But generally speaking, I think those are the characteristics of a great leader. Well, Dick, I appreciate it, man. Um, any other questions for me? This has been awesome. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your mentorship. I will say that like, you know, um, a lot of people celebrate in the end zones with you. A lot of people can be really great friends, but when it comes to truly being able to help strategize for things that other people haven't seen before, you know, the, the hardest issues that, you know, end up perplexing you as you scale in business, you've been, uh, one of my, you know, very, you know, most trusted advisors, um, you know, somebody I've always known I could turn to when, you know, things are sticky or where they're above my pay grade or over my head. And um, you've done it without the expectation of return. It's clear, like, you know, and, and uh, I just, you know, I think that that's a way that you lead by example that I learned from. You know, I always remember like Dean Smith, the former, you know, the old University of North Carolina basketball coach saying, you know, like, teaching his basketball players, like the basics of do good things, good things will happen. You know, you pass the ball the right way and think about executing the right way. Good things, the results will be generally speaking with some outliers, the results will be great. And I just kind of feel like, you know, that's a good way to think about living your life. Do good things for people and good things will happen. You don't have to like, everything doesn't have to be a, you know, what are you going to do for me? It's just a silly and, and um, just think that's a, it's a scarcity mentality instead of, instead of an abundance mentality. So I'm more than happy to do it and always will be. So the score takes care of itself. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, that's right. I'm, thank you for continuing the sports metaphor with the, with the Bill Walsh comment. My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, thanks again, Dick. I really appreciate you being on and uh, keep rocking out there. All right. Thanks, buddy. We'll see you. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.